Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. If we're looking for logic in this arena, you're going to be really frustrated. That's just not, you know, part of the game. And the sooner you get that, the better. So you take that and you put it aside, you put your ego aside, and you just kind of jump in and do the work. My father used to say, like, you know, what is success? Success as an actor is the ability to have choices. That's all it is. You know, because we're just as actors, we're scrambling around and we're desperately trying to get work and then we're always out of work. So success to him was a choice, the ability to have choice. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very happy to report Back in Malibu, everything seems to be coming together. Thank God you guys have been so supportive, and I really, really appreciate it. I'll never forget it. Thank you so, so much. Your messages, just incredible. we got a great, great show for you. I know you're going to like it a lot. Jeremy Piven, inspirational, incredibly talented. Before I get started, I just want to let you know that if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter, and I will answer whatever you would like me to answer. And without further ado, I want to get right to it because I really, really want you to really immerse yourself in this. So here it goes. Jeremy Piven is a television, stage, and film actor who's won multiple awards throughout his career. Throughout his life, he has been involved with his family's acclaimed Piven Theater Workshop, which was founded by his parents, Byrne and Joyce Piven, legendary acting gurus who have changed the face of the profession in more ways than anyone can count. He starred in a number of critically acclaimed and diverse films, such as Say Anything, Bob Roberts, Heat, Kiss the Girls, Cars, Mr. Selfridge, The Goods, and Edge of Tomorrow with Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise. In addition to a tremendous film career, Piven has been blessed with working with some of the greatest television actors of our time. 
including as a series regular on Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom Ellen and Gary Shandling's The Larry Sanders Show. But the role that Piven is most known for is the one he landed when he was cast as Agent Ari Gold on the HBO hit series Entourage. Wherefore, his performances as the fast-talking Hollywood agent, he won the Emmy Award in unprecedented three straight years in a row. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. You're going to get so much out of this. I'm so honored that he came here and did this for us. Please welcome my guest today, Jeremy Piven. It's good to be here, man. I'm proud of you. I'm really, it's, it's kind of, I, I never thought you'd be this guy, but it's, it's, you know, just, we have to welcome this with open arms and that's what we're doing. Well, the fact that you could be proud of something that I've done is, believe it or not, more meaningful than many, many things that anybody said to me, because I consider you to be one of the greatest thespians of my generation. Wow, I, I don't even know what to say to that. That's uh, th- that's such high praise because, you know, um, well, first of all, these are incredibly strange times, so it's so great, you know, people that say that they don't want to hear nice things about themselves um, when they spend their lives working very hard, I think are lying. I, but at the same time, I don't think... It's healthy to be needy, you know, and I think we have to get to a place in our lives. By the way, I don't know why this turned into a TED Talk, so I apologize. <laughs> I think we it's important to get to a place where we don't we don't need for our hard work to be confirmed in any way shape or form, but it's really nice to hear that and I know that, you know, we spoke briefly about this and you never wanted to do this and you don't think you're built for this and you're doing it and that's what that's what I think life is about is just you know, just abandoning that fear and just jumping in. One of the things about you that maybe a lot of people don't know is that I think to myself, obviously LeBron James' kids are probably going to play basketball. And your mother and father were acting gurus, not just teachers, but they were innovators. They were people who did things differently. Yes, they studied great people within the business of acting, and yes, they used forms of techniques of other great acting coaches and gurus before them, but they also developed a lot of their own styles, created their own school, and you were born into that family. Yeah, I was. I was very lucky, but I had no perspective on it. I thought that every family had a theater and that you, <laughs> I literally, I, I lived, I was such a dummy. It was really funny. I, I just assumed like every kid when they're eight years old, um, climbs on stage and butchers check off, <laughs> which is basically what I was doing. Literally did the three sisters at, at a, at a ridiculously young age. And they taught scene study and, um, sketch comedy and improv and, and, and a lot of story theater so we were jumping on stage um, and figuring out a way to get the attention off ourselves and onto the other person so we could be really present performers. And that was part of the, my journey. And uh, there was never any, I never thought of the work being drama or comedy because they always all, they existed 
at the same time together. And so I think that was one of the, you know, Joan Cusack and people like that grew up in the work and you see it in her work. Um, definitely without a doubt. Um, and so that was, what's kind of, what was fascinating about it is like, you, you don't get intimidated by either form because you're kind of immersed in both at the same time. And yeah, I was incredibly lucky. And I, I really did think that every kid had this type of opportunity. And it wasn't until I went to college because I had been with my parents, you know, studying with them and performing with them until I went to college. And I remember I was in the first day of acting 101, you know, at 8.15 in the morning. And my teacher, I finally went, okay, great. This is my first time being in an acting class that is not taught by my parents. And I'll never forget the teacher looks at me and he goes, Jeremy Piven, is your father Burn Piven? I went, oh my God, this is, it was the first day of college. I was like, oh my God, I can't, I guess I can't escape it. He goes, this is what he said. He goes, everything I've learned comes from your father. And I was like, (laughs) and everyone looked at me and it was just pressure was on. By the way, nothing he learned from my father, he taught. And that was (laughs) fascinating. And that was a whole nother journey onto itself. And yeah, I got I got very lucky. I, I like to believe that I picked my parents, and and my father passed away, and my mother, uh, I will see today, and I see her every day that I can, and she's incredible. And I, I do this, you know, I'm doing stand up comedy now, and I talk about her influence and the fact that, for instance, with Entourage, we would run lines all the time together. And if you think about that role and how you know abrasive and at times vulgar that character is, everything I said is Ari Gold, I said to my mother's face because we were running lines together and she never flinched. And so I do this whole bit about going you know, really too far with these lines that are kind of shocking and then keep exploring that. And my mom very calmly goes, great, let's go again, let's go again. Um, when you do the lines, and for those of you who might not be in the business, yeah. running lines means that Jeremy will have the scene in script form in his hand, and his mom will also have the scene in her hand, and he'll be highlighting his lines. Yeah, she's she basically played all, she played Drama Turtle E, Vince, she played all the characters beautifully. And it was a way for me, because I'm a stage actor, it was a way for me to treat all performances like a play in the way that I got to run it, run it, run it with her until the lines, you own the lines. They're not, you're not reaching for them. It's, it's second nature. And it's as if you've had weeks of rehearsal. And so by the time you hit the stage, you're able to give yourself a chance to possibly do the best work you can so that you can be totally present in the scene and be right there and see what the scene, all the possibilities. And I know it sounds very pretentious, to say all this stuff, but um, you you just want on the day f- to to be available to possibly getting lucky and finding some magic, you know, that can happen if you're really present for the other person, you know, whatever they're giving you. And that's, you know, entourage, people assume that I was improvising and the reality is Doug Ellen brilliantly wrote every word. And it was like my bar mitzvah. I was like my Haftorah portion. I had to hit every single word, you know, because he took a lot of time with that. And people assumed that that was improvised. And I find that I'm very proud of that because the nature of acting is to make it all feel totally improvisational. 
most actors, when they run lines with an acting coach or their friends, their intention, I don't think, was your intention. So the most actors, their intention is to run the scene over and over again and to memorize the lines and the stage direction and to get it properly done and right so that when you go in there and you audition or you're already on a show, you can walk right in and be 100% prepared. Something tells me that for you, when you came to your mom, it wasn't necessarily about the preparation. It was the repetition that got you in the zone where you were realizing, okay, as I do at this time, something's coming out here. It's not your mom saying to you, hey, man, a little more anger on this scene, yeah. a little less here, because you have the instinct that she has because you guys have been together for so long. I think for you, your intention was on each take, can I find something? It's like when you do stand-up comedy and you do, let's say, eight shows in a week and you're doing a routine. On that sixth show, doing the same bit, there might be something that comes out that you didn't know was going to come out, but it's the intention. And I think that was your main purpose besides the repetition. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, with my mother, she was so... She's just an incredible woman um, and very selfless and would say things like, well, I can't help you. I can just... You know, and of course, she's, you know, helped me as an actor my entire life. Um, and she would just offer up questions and possibilities. And maybe if she saw something that wasn't specific, you know, if there was a reference that I made that she it seemed a little vague, she might just say, you know, who is that person to you? And then, you know, you just want to make it specific and you you do all the work that you possibly can. And and you grind and, and you put it all in and, and, you know, then you give yourself an opportunity and a chance to, to kind of, to, as I said, do, do your best work. And that's really what it was about. But also, if you don't, you got, you got to just start with the lines. And if you don't own them, then, then you, you don't have a shot. But yeah, I mean, it's so, um, with, with stand-up, it's interesting and, and fascinating because right now for me, for me um, it's... It's just so incredible, and I, I haven't been doing it very long. And yet, I think because I've spent many decades on the stage, and I'm very comfortable on the stage, I have a shot. I'm listen. I'm headlining. I'm 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 traveling the country um, in a very short period of time, which is shocking to me because normally what I would do to take the stress off you, yeah. to take the pressure off you. Yeah. What I would do if I sent you across the country, it would be Jeremy Piven and Friends. Absolutely. And I would have you be the star of the show. Right. But you're hosting the show and you are self-choosing the greatest comedians in that area that you feel have the tone of the kind of show that you're doing. And so you're hosting, one of them's going first, one of them's going second, and one of them going third, and then at the end you take questions from the audience or whatever it is. And then you get to the point where you get your material to where you got that hour to where you're flawlessly comfortable with, and then 
you can close the shows and then build the people on before you. Sometimes you could do a thing where you put an extra performer before you, and that way you could start off by closing with 30 minutes and then moving to 40 and 45 and then to the hour. I'm surprised that you're putting that much pressure on yourself. Well, that would have been the smart way to do it for sure. I think what happened was, uh, you know, because I w I'm so green, um, and I got thrown into the deep water from the jump. You know, I was getting up at at the comedy store, you know, surrounded by these killers. And um, I would be up, I'd, I'd immediately run up to the attic and just run my set in my, in my head, sweating like it was my bar mitzvah, literally, and hearing the other guys backstage high-fiving and laughing and just running out on stage. You know what I mean? It's just second nature to all of them. And I was just in awe, Mark Maron and one night and Joe Rogan and going in between these killers. And I remember Joe saying, oh, great. That's just uh, it's just what we need. Another actor trying to do stand up. And then he saw my set and he came over to me afterwards and he said, hey, man, you're taking this seriously. And it meant a lot to me because I am and I do. And well, I coming from Joe, that's a huge compliment. Well, I mean, he's listen, he's. He's a, an incredibly curious and opinionated guy who has absolutely created this incredible lane for himself. And he's living his best life unapolog unapologetically. And it's just staggering and really cool. And yes, you're absolutely right. If, um, if he thought I was wasting people's time, he would have had no problem saying that to me. So that meant, it meant a lot to me. Um, and any chance I get to speak to a stand-up, I just sit there and I take notes and I'm in graduate school and I'm getting paid to learn and I know how lucky I am. Believe me, I do. And you take the ego out of the equation and I let these guys know that I'm a rookie and they see that. They don't see some guy that's, you know, coming from a prolific acting background that is coming in and demanding to be respected. They see a guy, you know, I get up at the dime and uh, on Monday and Tuesday nights in, and, I, and I bomb, you know, in front of a couple people that are there to see the DJ and a couple stand-up comics in the back. And that's the heavy lifting. You know, when I get up anywhere that allows me to get up and um, I, I just get my reps, I listen to the sets, I take my notes, I write as often as I possibly can. And I, I threw myself into it and I should have done what you said, but yet for whatever reason it served me in terms of because I was getting up amongst these brilliant comics, I, I, I'll tell you how it all started. The Laugh Factory came to me and they said, we've, we've got some charity. Um, would you want to come and host with Russell Peters, <laughs> probably the, the greatest guy in terms of working a crowd out there. So you're going to work the crowd and host an evening with Russell, Russell Peters. And you raise money for underprivileged kids. And I said, absolutely, that'd be amazing. So I got up there with Russell. And so what I did was I, I, I really do know my limitations. I, I'm not, yes, I'm green, but I'm not really foolish. I know that Russell's going to school me. If I get up there and attempt to work the crowd with him, it's a joke. It's a joke. So I just knew, okay, I've got to work up some bits that I can have in my back pocket that I can just, if I, cause yes, I'm an improviser. I've improvised my entire life, but that's different than working a crowd, way different. So I just went, okay, let me just work some bits. 
okay, um, charity, uh, okay, I can say that I'm a, like, I, I, I work for um, Make-A-Wish, but I'm a celebrity alternate, you know, in case their first choice doesn't show up, then I'll show up. Okay, run with that, run with that, run with that. Um, and then I just worked out a bit and worked out a couple bits, and then they worked, and that got, that got me hooked. And it happened organically, you know? It was one of those things where, you know, I mean, I'm sure every stand-up talks about this. What was that moment that got you? And that, that got me. I'm standing up there with Russell, who's, you know, just crushing it. And I got some laughs. You know, I thought of some stuff in private, and it worked in public, and I was in. What yeah. did Russell say to you afterwards? I, he, you know what? Russell's one of these guys who, uh, he really there's a reason why he's so good and present and works a crowd so well. So I, I he's, he's been in, in, incredible to me uh, in terms of, I think he's very respectful of me as an actor. And um, I think that he's also very protective as most standups are about the space that they occupy as standups. And so he wasn't, uh, you know, incredibly effusive about, what I did up there, but I think he, he has always been encouraging. And I think that he thinks that I have something to offer, uh, because I'm a performer, um, at heart and he's been incredibly encouraging of it, but he wasn't necessarily specific about anything, but he's, you know, he, he does recognize like Joe that he'll go, wow, see you out there. You're doing the work, man. You know, he sees me everywhere, touring everywhere, getting up anywhere, and so that was, yeah, that was the turning point moment for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's this never ending chase with stand up. Like last night, for whatever reason, uh, I wasn't the, at all the best version of myself on stage and I was up there and it was fascinating because I was nervous and there's no need to be nervous. I, I felt it. I, I said to, to Jay afterwards, who is booking Jay Davis, he's, he's a complete, sweetheart and is kind of running running it with 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 Jamie over there at the Laugh Factory and it's been really really kind to me and um I said to him afterwards I said man I went to this incredibly intense yoga class and then got this rolfing session where this woman opened up my everything like all the you know emotional traumas and all your chakras and I was this kind of vulnerable you know, strange entity. I should have been by uh, like at a campfire, you know, like bearing my soul to a woman. Instead, I was on stage, like being viciously mediocre. I was not. In hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. In the right state to do comedy. You know what I mean? I felt everything. I felt my nerves. I felt my my. 
I, my, I was so emotionally available. It would have been great if I was doing like a very dramatic scene. I would have sobbed like a grandmother. <laughs> but I just wasn't in the right state to do comedy. And I'm on stage, you know, and I've, I've been touring everywhere now without stopping this year. And I've gotten some really nice reps. And I got like, you know, a, I got 50 minutes of material that I'm doing, you know, um, everywhere. And I'm, I'm feeling like I'm progressing in that world. And I'm doing a quick 15 at the Laugh Factory. And I was up there with my heart pounding going, what is this about? So you can never get comfortable with stand-up. It's just amazing. You just never stop learning. And I'm, I'm in awe of it. Which is harder, acting or stand-up? Um, I, I, think that, I think right now for me, stand-up is way harder. Because there are moments I know, I know when everything comes together and you're in that rare space where you're totally present and you're in the state of play and you're available to your instincts and you're hitting the material and it's, and it's feeling and looking improvisational and you actually are in that state where you can kind of write on stage at the same time and you're there and present for the audience and every once in a while you hit that pocket and then you're chasing it. You know what I mean? So that's fascinating to me. Um, and it's really difficult. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, and then, then there are levels to the game where, you know, I, I can I can only get better. So, um, yeah, it's, it, stand-up is more difficult. Which is harder, dramatic acting or comedy acting? Comedy. Comedy comedy is harder because you can bend the notes in drama and you can't in comedy you got to hit them you got to hit them i was talking to adam mckay who's actually my brother-in-law i was married to my sister shira and they have a daughter pearl who is pearl from the landlord you know the little will ferrell yeah it was the first kind of almost viral video for funny or die give me my money bitch she had about 115 million hits and she had no no idea she thought she had a play date with will <laughs> um i think adams would be the first one to tell you that comedy's harder you know um listen it's it's all a challenge of course um but you know, to hit, you know, he's one of these people, like, you look at the way he works with Will, and um, he's able to uh, allow Will to play and, and, and to, be, and, and to, and to, for, for Will to feel like he has access to all that he has. And there are times when you see him and you know that people possibly aren't embracing him as an improvisational force, which he is. You know, so you might as well use your, the full range of a guy. When I interviewed Judd Apatow, he said one of his favorite things in the world is producing a movie that Adam is directing with Will because he just runs down to the set early and he'll just see Adam say, okay, you're going to get punched by this guy in this scene, okay? This one, when you get punched, I just want you to just act like you're normal and then start talking in Spanish 10 seconds later. And then they'll do the scene there and then it'll be cut. Okay, this one, I want you to get hit. I want you to act strong and macho. And then about 15 seconds later, start whimpering and breaking into tears. Yeah, because he knows that Will you can just turn him loose and you give him a few keys and he's off to the race. I remember doing 
old school. I, I played the, the, the Dean in old school with Will and, and, and all the boys, Todd Phillips, obviously directed that. And Will's one of these guys where like, you're doing a scene with him and no matter what you say, because of all of his SNL training, he can hold it together no matter what. But I remember, um, him when when I was like running them through their paces and then at one point someone had to do an interpretive dance and um Luke Wilson was supposed to do it at the last second Luke for whatever reason it didn't happen and Will just immediately threw on a leotard and and had this little kind of ribbon and started chasing it like he was a cat (laughs) chasing some string and I'm you know playing the kind of nerdy Dean that's you know that's the villain and if you look, take a good look at it, my head is shaking and I'm, and tears are just squirting out of my eyes. I'm just trying to hold it together because it's the most insane thing you've ever seen in your life. And he just, you know, he's a, he's a very kind of, um, shy guy in real life, you know, uh, unassuming. Um, if you didn't know who he was, you know, you wouldn't think that he's a, a, a genius, you know, necessarily. But then when he, when you turn him loose, there's nothing like it. So that was an incredible experience. For those of you who haven't seen the pilot of Entourage and have been living in a cave, I'm sorry to be a spoiler for you, but at the end of the episode, one of your probably only three minutes throughout the episode, you're working so hard to get your client to do something. I'm trying not to spoil these things here. And at the end of the episode, you get a phone call that is against everything you've been working towards. And in that scene, you did something that always affects me in film and television, acting without words. And the last 30 seconds of that scene where you get the news, there's the end of the call and you have the cell phone and you have it by your ear and you're sort of looking at it and it's like you almost throw it out the window and you have that moment. To me, that's one of the moments in television that I will always remember as long as I live. And I cannot believe that in the script it said, okay, you're going to get the phone call and the stage directing is you're going to take the phone here, you're going to look at it, you're going to have that look on your face, you're going to pretend to throw it out the window. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that you probably through many times doing it with your mom in the house came up with something special there. And that to me was the exclamation point on that episode that was so fantastic and defined your character for the future. Well, thank you. Yeah. I I think it goes back to what I was saying about being prepared. If you're, if you're prepared uh, to be, you know, to, to be totally present, there's no difference between dialogue and listening. You're, you're just, you're in it, you're locked in and you're, you're active. Um, and, and you're available to what comes up if that person that you're talking to on the phone is, you know, if you're representing, let's say, Benicio Del Toro, a young Benicio Del Toro, spoiler alert, I was using uh, substitution. I should <laughs> never have said that. Who said that? Wait, what? <laughs> How? Oh, no. Um, you know, when when you make things specific and you're in there and you're and you're and listen, 
I'll just tell you exactly how I played that character. I studied with a with a brilliant teacher named Tim Robbins, the great actor director named Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins, for those of you who obviously know him as an Academy Award winning actor, but also he is an incredibly giving person in the acting community, and he runs a theater in Culver City called the Actors Gang, and his form of teaching is if somebody does something on stage that's brilliant and unique and authentic, use it. Use it again and again. Steal it. Use it in another scene. Do whatever you want if you feel it's authentic. But he also uses Commedia dell'arte. Commedia dell'arte, which is one of four emotional states. He'll oftentimes, if you've ever seen the old masks from... Italy, where they have the big noses and you can see the mouth and only the eyes, like the Pantaleone mask, and he'll do yeah. a lot of things with that for the states. So will you explain to our audience the states? I know you'll think it's boring and pretentious, but this is really great stuff. No, it's it's how I played the character um, and and why it's, it's not seen a lot just because you're so incredibly emotionally invested and as my character was he was you know and so um commedia dell'arte which is the first form of acting and they use kerosene lamps before electricity and so you face the audience and they were exaggerated um movements and facial expressions and everything was heightened so that people could see it and when I was, if I'm talking to you in a scene, I'm looking directly into the audience's eyes, so they they get to see everything. And you have to be totally rooted in truth, in the truth of the character and the scene and all that stuff. And then you're in one of four emotional states: happiness, sadness, anger, or fear. One of them has to be one of them. Pick one; doesn't matter which one. But just dig in. And you know, Ari was a full. If you go back and look at it, it was just commedia dell'arte. And it's really funny to me, you know, in this. We have a very interesting culture, and I was lucky enough to go to school in London and do the last four years playing Mr. Selfridge over there. Um, In this culture, when you hit something that's authentic, they then assume that that's who you are and that's your character, and they possibly found you in a mail room, and and it was a documentary, and uh, I am Ari Gold. And, you know, it's been... It's been a very interesting journey, and I was not prepared for it at all, you know? I was an under-the-radar working actor, you know, before Entourage. I was in my mid-30s when I got it, and I was actually voted at 37 the fresh face of the year. (laughs) There was nothing fresh about my face at 37, I'll tell you that much. But um, so what, what happened was, suddenly there was this interesting backlash. The moment uh, the character started getting some recognition and, you know, in the press it was, I was reported uh, to be this character and to be this loud, abrasive, I was vilified immediately and I just wasn't, I had no clue because I, you know, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from this acting family and uh, an acting community where we support each other and love each other and we're there for each other. And then, you know, but listen, I'm, I'm not, I'm not railing against the heavens. I'm just telling you about my journey. I just wasn't prepared, you know, for that. And I still feel like there is that kind of reference for me. Oh, that, yeah, he's the abrasive guy. Oh yeah, he's a douchebag. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny whenever anyone that represents me, whenever they say the feedback from a meeting, the feedback is always, oh, that's, he's not who I thought he was, you know? And that's so interesting. That's, you know, and it's, it's, it's part of it. It's all part of it. If you're in people's living rooms for eight seasons in a movie, 
you know, they're going to get used to it. My mom saw it coming because she said, watch out. You know, if this goes for a while, this is a very specific character and you might get mistaken for him. Um, and it's all part of it. You know what I mean? And then, then it's about how do you deal with that? You know, you could be angry and frustrated or whatever, but you have to figure out it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. And so you've got to deal with it. You know what I mean? And so that's been a fascinating journey. In my mind, you stole the pilot and you didn't even have any time on the pilot. And that set you up for four Emmy nominations in a row and winning three Emmys in a row. Was there ever a time when you were looking at it saying to yourself or with your mom, Mom, I've been a series regular on Ellen. I've done a lot of great. Why are they offering me this tiny little thing? Well, they Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You weren't even offering it to me. That I mean, that's the best part of it. Here, the greatest lesson is to, is to truly put your ego aside. No matter where you think you should be, it's everything you just said. Um, it's figuring what are the variables okay so you've got hbo has the best pedigree of shows in the game it's got sopranos sex in the city and all these incredible things larry sanders show which i was on for the first three years playing the head writer which started original programming so hbo is the best in the game okay it's a i first heard about it because some buddies of mine were up to write it and it was about the backstage life uh, it's an homage to mark Wahlberg's life wow i know mark Wow, he's a fascinating dude, man. That guy lives in dualities. You know, he's there's something really interesting about Mark. And it's also about his agent and 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 Johnny Drama, who's his chef and trainer and that guy and Turtle and all these guys. I'm no I I've I've hung out with Mark. I knew these guys exist. Okay, that's very that's a very specific world. Yeah. So I'm just thinking this through. Oh my my buddies who are great who wrote, you know, Gross Point Blank and all these incredible stuff. And I grew up with them in Chicago and started a theater company with them and John Cusack. And I have all this incredible history with them. Wow, they didn't get the job. Whoever got the job has to be really good. What's this pilot? Okay, here's the pilot. Oh, okay, well, there's a character, Ari. Well, that's an homage to Ari Emanuel. Oh, I know Ari Emanuel. That's Ari Emanuel, one of the greatest agents in this town, and now William Morris Endeavor, one of the owners and partners. Yeah, and also purchased a little company called the UFC and, and probably everything else. Um, so at the time, he was my agent. And I thought, this guy is fascinating as well. 
he's kind of this mad genius who I, I read the character. I was like, oh, okay. I know this character. This, this guy exists. Um, talk about dualities. He seems like a raging pig, but he's monogamous to his wife. He's incredibly reactive. Um, he loves his clients. He's, he's loyal to them. Um, and he, he's all over the place. He's everything that I played and more. Um, so I knew, wow, there's such potential with that character. The character has one scene in the pilot. Um, and my agents at the time said, um, why, why would you, I'm sorry. Ari was not my agent at the time. He was my agent earlier, but at the time, my then agent said, why exactly what you just said? Why would you, you're getting offers for, you know, to do the leads in, in shows. Why would you play, as they said, a fringe character that has one scene and I just knew, and I'm not playing Monday morning quarterback, but I knew, look, there are so many shows that exist to this day that I have for decades about the backstage life of actors and, you know, Entertainment Tonight, E, all this kind of stuff. People are fascinated by the backstage life of performers. So here is a fictional account that's based on Wahlberg, which is very specific, and his crew. And there's something here. And th there's something also with that character that I knew that I could sink my teeth into. And I love playing Commedia dell'arte. I had this theater company, and that was it was a form that set me free, that I knew that I could really, you know, I could let my hands go as a, as a sports metaphor when, when boxers really kind of get into it and, and throw a lot of punches. I could really... I could really sink my teeth into this role. So I just basically said, yeah, well, you know, the offer was for not a lot of money. I just, you know, come from the stage. I come from my reference for working is what's the best work you can possibly do. And, you know, when I was doing the Larry Sanders show, I was living in the pool house and I didn't have a TV. I was on TV and didn't have a TV. You were living on what pool? I was living in, in Mar Vista in, 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 in a guy's pool house, literally. And uh, Paul Sims, who was, was the showrunner, I remember came to my house one time. And he goes, man, you're a series regular on an HBO show. Why are you? You're the pool boy. What in God's name is it? What's happening, man? And, you know, I just was in that Chicago theater mentality. Oh, man, I guess, okay. Yeah, I'll get a, I guess I gotta get a place. So for me... You know, quotes and all this stuff like, yeah, you only got to take 20%. I took 10% of my quote after Entourage to do Mr. Selfridge. And, and I grew as an actor and it was incredible. I'll never, I'll, you know, never forget it or regret agents it. agents were happy about that. You know, I don't, I don't really know. I, I know that, you know, they're all different types of agents that, that they get the big picture and some do and some don't or whatever. So here you're coming off three seasons as the head writer on the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. You're working with a genius. There's other geniuses on the show. Right. You're killing it on that show. I wouldn't say I'm killing it. I'm coming off the bench and trying to hold it together while other people are killing it. While Jeffrey Tambor is, is, is ripping it apart. And all I'm trying to do is keep a straight face. I just, I was in, you know, comedy graduate school in the Larry Sanders show. I just, I just watched, I just watched and learned from the greats and Judd Apatow did this brilliant documentary of Gary and it's just, I can't stop watching it and it's just incredible. And he was an amazing gem that we were lucky to have. And I just got to witness it. And, 
and um, to to be a part of that was incredible. Uh, it was every everyone Rip Torn, everyone on that show was before it's time. So you're part of that. Yeah. Then Entourage comes along, and first of all, the agency doesn't bring it to your attention. You're an actor. You're not an agent. You're not a manager. But yet you're getting wind of what's happening with it before you're being notified. Secondly, when you bring it up to their attention, they say, listen, I don't know. Why do you want to do this? But thirdly, HBO and the people involved are not coming to you and saying you want to audition for this. They're not even offering you the right here. This is a three minute small thing. We want to offer this to you at 20 percent of your rate. No, they're making you come in and audition for it. Yeah, listen, you you can't, I think we're, if we're looking for logic in this arena, you're going to be really frustrated. That's just not, you know, part of the game. And the sooner you get that, the better. So you take that and you put it aside, you put your ego aside and you just kind of jump in and do the work. And yet, yeah, at the time I had done 40 movies you know, um, before Entourage, and I've been doing leads and TV shows. So when they say come in and audition for one scene in a pilot that's not really a series regular, kind of a fringe player, I said to my agents, let's set the precedent. Let's say to them, why don't we do a meeting? And because I really know the world, and I can have a great meeting with them about the world, and 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 be very specific. Let's, I because my father used to say like. You know, what is success? Success as an actor is the ability to have choices. That's all it is. You know, because we're just as actors, we're scrambling around and we're desperately trying to get work and then we're always out of work. So success to him was choice, the ability to have choice. And so I thought, you know what? It would be so amazing if, because I had auditioned for everything all the time, and I thought, you know what? I've earned the right to go in and meet with them. And my agents were like, no, nah, sorry. They only want to do an audition. I said, you guys, but this is, this is not even a lateral move. This is, we're going backwards here. You're, I'm going from doing the leads in, in TV shows to a, a tiny role. Let me go and meet with them. So we finally got the meeting, had the meeting. It, was, it went really, really well. Who was the meeting with? Uh, it was with you know, Steve Levinson and, and Doug Ellen. Um, uh, all, all, all the executive producers and David Frankel, who who was brilliant. I'd, I'd worked with him on Miami Rhapsody, and he's a great TV director and, and film director. And the meeting went really, really well. And I told them specifically who I thought Ari Gold was, and um, and 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 the show, and and it went really, it went really well. And I, I got very lucky and got offered the part, and and here we are. And you knew, because you were in the world, you knew who was cast, you knew who was up for your role. Um, I don't necessarily know that I know who was up for my role. Um, I, I don't like to know that type of stuff. I think the less I know, the better. You know, I don't even like to know who's in the audience. You know, that's just, that's just a lot of distractions. You just want to be as present as possible and do the best work you can. I want to go way, 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 way back. Okay. Take me back to where you grew up. Okay. The adversity you might have faced, the family dynamics with your parents being the acting gurus and your 
sister and how you got to the point where you were inspired by this business? What was the first thing that maybe you saw in the household or that you were a part of? And the last question would be, when did you know I'm never going to do anything ever again except for this? Well, because I grew up in the work and ever, and, and being in the theater uh, was all just very natural to me and being directed by my parents seemed all, uh, you know, I didn't know any different. Um, and yet anyone probably looking at us thought we were freaks. Um, you know, growing up, it's so interesting. We're living in a time where I think, you know, being a white man, we get labeled as someone that comes from white privilege. And the reality is, is that I, I grew up in a retirement home. My parents were stage actors making nothing. And I, I assumed that everyone had a neck brace when they got older because I was just surrounded by older people moving incredibly slowly. Um, and I remember coming home to watch cartoons as a child and all of our, we had been robbed. And I went to my mom and I said, the couch is gone, the, the coffee table, I can't even watch cartoons, what happened? She goes, oh no, we're using our furniture for the set of The Seagull, we're doing Chekhov's The Seagull. So like literally, all of our furniture, I was like, can't you guys have a real job? What is enough of this stuff? The Seagull, what? I wanna watch Hogan's Heroes, you can't watch Hogan's Heroes. It was glorifying Nazis. What, I can't watch Hogan's Heroes? You know, it's just a very strange uh, up, upbringing. So um, I, I, I was incredibly lucky and having a blast with them and doing story theater and improv and sketch comedy and, and doing these, these, the, great, the greats on stage. We were doing like short stories of, of Kurt Vonnegut and, and Salinger and grew up like that. And my mother would, on stage, she would be doing Chekhov and she was so good that as a child, I could understand everything she was saying. Because my parents just had a saying, like, you know, when you're doing Shakespeare or any of the great works, if the audience doesn't understand it, it's your fault, not theirs. Make them truly understand what you're saying. And so I, I remember as a child seeing my mom do Chekhov, and I really could understand her, and it was great and brilliant, and they were incredible teachers, and they were very different. But my father took me one time as a child to see John Malkovich in True West in a basement and in Chicago, and I just thought, what is this? And uh, he, it was a revelation, man. This guy was dangerous and charismatic, and just, it was, it was like he had wandered onto that stage, and he was very specific with this character, and he was incredible, and I got to, you know, my father was friends with him, and uh, they were colleagues, and worked together, and all this stuff, and and so I got to meet him afterwards, and that was really cool. And that was very, very, uh, very inspiring to me, you know, to see to see that, and to, and to, and because also, you know, it was something that wasn't coming from the Piven Theater. That was a little bit different from everything. And so, so those those types of things. And then, as I said, Tim Robbins set me free at 21 years old, going and studying with him, and coming out here to L.A. Uh, and studying Commedia dell'arte. That to me was was like a revelation so you're starting to think about at this point in time you're in the theater the actors gang obviously you're being noticed there's people who then probably come up to you who are agents or managers do you remember the first time somebody came up to you and said hey i want to represent you 
Uh, yes. I mean, you have to understand because I was on the stage at all times in Chicago, uh, the Getty's agency back in the day, which is a, a, a really great Chicago agency that, you know, just a mom and pa organization just doing their thing, you know, um, they, they, that was my first representation and they were so sweet and so kind and loyal and amazing. And we would always, you know, audition and put it on tape and send it to LA and cross your fingers and hope someone even saw it. And, um, in one case they did see it. And my first movie was Lucas with Charlie Sheen and Carrie Green and Corey Haim. Um, and David Seltzer wrote and directed it. And, and, you know, the circus came to town and there I was filming my first movie and, uh, it was incredible. Um, I'd never seen anything like it, and all the Hollywood types came to town, and that was interesting and fascinating and fun. And when you said the circus came to town, what yeah. happens a lot of times for actors who are in Toronto or Miami or Houston, or sometimes what happens is a movie location is in your town, and yeah. there'll be a casting notice that comes out for what's called a local hire, which means that they don't have to fly you in, they don't have to yeah. put you up, they're exactly. just using a local actor. And so local actors in those areas have a chance to pick up the sixth, seventh, eighth, sometimes the fifth lead in a movie, sometimes less, and get their opportunity because it saves the production money and they have a serviceable actor in the role. How did you feel you did stepping onto the set and how was that different from the stage? Like how is acting on a movie set different from acting on the stage? It, it, it was it was fascinating because, um, I mean, I was friends with Cusack, so I would go and, and visit him when he was, he became a movie star very early on when we were like 16 years old. We met when we were both, you know, eight years old, um, climbing on stage with my parents doing checkoff and we would alternate the role, you know, of the, of the kid. Uh, and so that's how we kind of met initially and, and we're very close, uh, very much growing up. And um, yeah, he became a movie star at 16, you know, when he was very, very ambitious and um, more so than the rest of us and and uh, and put together. He would take the train into the city and, and audition and, you know, he was unstoppable. I mean, getting the lead as a as a local as a kid, you know, just on tape in the sure thing with Rob Reiner, that was that was kind of incredible. So by the time I did Lucas, I had gone and visited John a couple times, you know, um, on the sets and it was just like this magical place. How did this guy even do this? I mean, it was like otherworldly. And then, you know, you, you got your buddy and you're in high school and suddenly the next semester he comes back and he's a movie star. It's very, very surreal. The whole thing was very surreal. And there I was, you know, I've always been a journeyman actor. That's what I am to this day. Like, I think there's this misconception and especially, and we don't need to go into any of this, but in this world where people are misusing their power. Um, and that's what people are, you know, up in arms about. And there's a lot of it. I'm a journeyman actor. Uh, Ari Gold <laughs> was in a position of power. Jeremy Piven is, you know, say what you will. I've been, I've been lucky and, and been very prolific, but I'm a journeyman actor. And it started with Lucas. And so I was on the stage. I was, Lucas, like all those other 40 movies I did before Entourage, was not written. 
There was almost nothing on the page. So it's my job as like a utility infielder to come in and fill in the blanks. And I have a background in improv, you know? So that's what I did. And I also was a viciously mediocre uh, high school line, Jewish linebacker. And I was playing a football player. So I, get to, I got to keep the pads on. So I'm playing a football player. I, was, I actually was a football player. And my job was to improvise. And I'm an improviser. Um, and so it was a blast. And I, I, I really had the time of my life. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.